Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jean-Jacques Taylor. Jacques is an award-winning journalist who has been covering sports in Dallas-Fort Worth for nearly three decades and has over 10,000 stories to his credit. He has covered 25 Super Bowls, two World Series, two NBA Finals, a Stanley Cup Finals, and the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. But the story of Dion Sanders is the primary reason Jacques has graciously agreed to join us today, more specifically about the book he has written and just published under the HarperCollins imprint called Coach Prime, Dion Sanders and the Making of Men. It is Jacques' exclusive insider account with unprecedented access to Dion Sanders, as well as to his staff and players, as they literally are changing the culture of college football and beyond. Unless you've been living under that proverbial rock, you will know the name Dion Sanders. Let's dive in to learn more about him right now. Welcome, Jacques, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm in Dallas, Texas, man. I'm blowing green. Excellent. Well, I'm going to throw you for a loop right off the bat. I have interviewed a Jean-Marc and André Philippe, a Jean-Francois and a Jean-Philippe. All were French Québécois from our province of Quebec. Now, I know your early childhood was spent relatively near our Canadian border growing up in Buffalo, New York. But is it safe to say you were one of the few Jean-Jacques in the Lone Star state of Texas? Uh, yeah, I, would, I, I think that's the deal. Um, now, you know, my the uh, my name depends on who, who you believe. <laughs> uh, my mother was a French and Spanish major in college, um, straight-A student. Don't think she ever had a B. She says, hey, I liked uh, Jean-Jacques. And so that's how you got your name. So I could have easily been Juan Carlos. But if you listen to my father... Uh, who's an activist, uh, he said it's uh, named after Jean-Jacques Desalines, the Haitian revolutionary. So <laughs> it's all good either way. Both topics make for a conversation piece. And um, I've gone by Jacques my entire life. And then um, when I got to college, I started writing. And you got to understand, being in the States, you go by Jacques because the first day of school is Jean. And you're like, no, it's not Jean and Jacques. Well, no, it's still, I mean, it just becomes a big to do. And so I just went by Jacques and uh, I wrote a story for the, for the uh, Columbus Dispatch while I was in college. And I showed it to my dad. I said, hey, what you think? It's my first story. And he said, you know what? This is a very good story, but you should go by your full name because it's a lot more distinctive and it'll stand out a lot more and it'll just look good in print. And I'm the kind of guy who, uh, if my parents made a suggestion, even if I wouldn't really die with it, both of my parents are pretty smart and pretty practical. I I give it a shot. I might change my mind later, but if they if they said if they suggested something, then I would do it. Absolutely. And I don't need to tell you about marketing and the brand, certainly with your topic of choice. And let's jump right into it. Deion Sanders is the story right now, not only in sports, but arguably in the Zeitgeist. He's been the focus of a story on 60 Minutes. He is currently on the cover of Time magazine. He's now being followed by people who don't even know which end of a football is up. Congratulations, Jacques, not only on your book, but congratulations on your impeccable timing to have it just recently hit the shelves. What a coup. Yeah, I, I didn't have a whole lot to do with the uh, with the timing and him going to Colorado and having this uh, breakout season. But I've known D.I. for years, decades, and uh, when the opportunity came... Uh, told me I could have total access to the program. And, you know, I've been around football for most of the last 30 years. But even if you're a really good reporter like I, like I did, you're only allowed so close to the team. And so this was an opportunity to go inside a team 
And anytime you're inside a team and you go to meetings and you can just sit there and observe, uh, you'd be shocked at, you know, just how it is because it's nothing. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. And so the experience was fantastic. And uh, my job was to really be an observational reporter and really, man, take people places that they've never been and always wanted to go. And so that's why I say it's important that I'm in the locker room and I'm on the sideline in these different meetings because the book works because you literally go places you're never allowed to go. You see and hear things you're never allowed to see and hear. And when it, when you get done with it, you really feel like you've experienced the season with them because so much of it is true observational reporting. Well, that is true. Everyone, however, wants a piece of Dion. How did this book project come to be? How did you form a relationship with Dion that gave you the access to literally uproot your life and embed yourself for six months with his former Jackson State University football program? Oh, uh, I mean, it really starts back in the 90s. I, I was, I've been covering the Dallas Cowboys as either a uh, print reporter or a columnist or a TV insider or a radio host or a podcaster for the last 30 years. And so I got to know him. Uh, actually, my first year covering the Cowboys, 1995, was his first year with the team. Uh, and so it took a couple of years to kind of build a relationship. And uh, so we built one. And then, you know, in the offseason, man, uh, over the years, once he retired, he still lived in Dallas. So I'd bump into him here or I'd bump into him there. And so, you know, we did a couple of projects together. Um, he asked me to do some writing for him. And so I've just known him off and on. I've been around him for the last 30 years. And once he got this, um, once he got the job at Jackson State, uh, I had a lot of relationships with the people at ESPN in part because I had just been laid off in 2016. So I still know a lot of people there. They called and said, hey, we know you know Dion. Can you do something for us? And at that point, I was like, you know what? I haven't talked to him in like a year or so. Uh, let me see if he still got the same phone number. Of course he did. And so as, as fate would have it, in Texas, in high school, if you have a son, he probably plays Texas high school football. Uh, I have a son uh, who plays Texas, played Texas high school football at the, at the highest level. And so I told him, I said, you know what? My son's team is actually playing Dion's team in a couple of weeks. So I'll just get there early, go, uh, go catch up with him before the game and, you know, see if we can make something happen. Did that. Uh, had good conversations. Like, you know, it's like we never stopped talking. And uh, from that, I just started kind of covering Jackson State once he showed up, went to the games that COVID year. And going into his second season, Sports Illustrated called and said, hey, we'd like for you to do a cover story on Jackson State. Dion. I did that. And literally two days after that story ran, I got a call from the people at HarperCollins and said, hey, we've been waiting for somebody to, to, uh, to write a book on Dion for a couple of years. We've been looking for somebody. Uh, we just read your story. It's fantastic. Girl, can you do it? At that point, I'm like, heck, yeah, I just need to check in with him and see, you know, if he's down for that. And uh, called him up, literally was a two-minute conversation, and, uh, you know, we took it from there. That's that's great. You know, Jacques, we're kind of a general interest podcast, so if you don't mind, I'm just going to set this up a little for everyone so we're all on the same page. Uh, Deion Sanders is currently the head coach of the football team at the University of Colorado, where his nickname is Coach Prime. But before he was a coach, Deion was primetime one of the greatest two-sport professional athletes of all time. He played 14 seasons in the NFL, winning two Super Bowls, and eventually being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But he also played nine seasons of Major League Baseball with his one World Series appearance, unfortunately for him, being against our world champion Toronto Blue Jays in 1992. Deion Sanders is the only athlete in history to play in both a Super Bowl and a World Series. 
Now, them is the facts, as they say, but that doesn't really give you the sense of the impact Dion had on two different sports that old goats like you and I, Jacques, would appreciate. As you've noted, your relationship goes all the way back to 1995 when both of you joined the Dallas Cowboys, Dion as a player, you as a beat writer. For all the youngsters out there who weren't around to see it with their own eyes, Jacques, can you please give a brief primer to Dion in his prime time or playing days? What was it? What was his impact? He's really a, uh, he's an electrifying athlete with a tremendous speed. Uh, but there's a lot of electrifying athletes over the course of time with tremendous speed and, you know, gifts that, uh, you know, you can only, only dream about. So that part is not necessarily that unusual. But he had the flamboyance and the charisma and the it factor Kind of like a Muhammad Ali in terms of, hey, here's how good I am. And then watch me go do exactly what I said I was going to do. And that's what really uh, kind of separated it. And then, you know, the other unique aspect of him is he's never been a guy who listened to what people say. Like you can say, like even in our business, you could say people could tell you, hey, uh, you need to start in a small market and learn how to do everything and work your way up. And at a certain point, you can be explaining to that because I had a young kid do this to me this summer. He's like, well, you know, they say this and, you know, they say that, you know, they say. And finally, I said, like, who is they? Well, you know, they, no, like, who is they? And it's, well, people, I was like, everybody's story is not the same, man. And you don't have to take the same route that everybody else took. You can, but you don't necessarily have to. And, you know, that that always resonated with me because I didn't take the same route. And again, in our business, most people, you have to start at a very small paper or radio station and work your way up. I started at the Dallas Morning News and two years out of college, I'm coming to Cowboys. And it's because I just decided I didn't want to take that route and I was going to do everything by power so I didn't have to. Now you flip it to Dion, it's the same thing. Hey, you need to pick one. You can't play baseball or football. You know, he's like, well, why not? Well, you know, people just don't do it. Well, I'm not people. I'm going to do it. And so... You can't even really conceive of somebody who can hit a home run and score a touchdown in the same week at the highest level of professional sports. I mean, you just really can't conceive of that. Or somebody who hit uh, more than 400 in the World Series. I think he hit more than 500 in the World Series. And then came back and played in the NFL season. I mean, it's just unheard of. That's the Babe Ruth stuff. I mean, that's the stuff of legends. And um, he is a legendary sports figure. Uh, the things he did on the football from the first time he touched the ball, scored a touchdown, returned the putt. I mean, he's just incredible in the things that he did. Uh, for a long time, he held the record for uh, most points. I mean, most t- touchdowns by a non-defensive player, non-offensive player. And says so he's that kind of phenomenal athlete. And he's got the charisma to match it. And that's where that's, his charisma and his light is as bright as his performance on the field. And uh, that's why he is Deion Sanders. Uh, he's one of the greatest marketers ever in terms of marketing his own skill set and his own skills. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And when you talk about professional baseball, he played nine years in baseball. It's not like he just had a cup of coffee. No, he played nine seasons in the big leagues as a part-time player. So the question is always, well, how good could he have been if he wanted to play full-time? And the answer is he probably would have been an all-star two or three times because he had that kind of skill set. Now, he wouldn't hit a lot of homers, but he'd have been a mess to deal with on the bases. He'd have scored a lot of runs. And he was a good hitter and he was left-handed. So, you know, he was a, he's just a phenomenal athlete. Well, as you noted, he had it. He had that it factor. 
How would you then describe his transition from prime time, the player, through various other post-playing careers to become the coach prime character that he's best known as today? Well, he's uh, he's always coached. Like when he was doing the NFL Network for 14 years, he's still coaching. He's been a coach in some shape or form probably for the last 15, 16 years. Uh, he did it at the youth level because he's always like kids. He's always like teaching kids and working with kids. And, you know, the, the, the thing that you always got to remember is when you work with kids, you don't know every kid's story, but the world is full of stories of kids who've had their lives transformed and the trajectory of their lives changed because some coach interceded, put them on a path that they would not have discovered necessarily by themselves, and then they become successful. And that doesn't mean that they always become stars, but they become successful. They become successful husbands, fathers, pillars of the community, that kind of thing. Uh, it happened to him in terms of uh, being really good role models. His, his youth coach, Dave Cable, is who he formed his uh, his own youth organization like uh, in, in in that image. Then you got Ron Hoover, who was his high school coach, who's a big disciplinarian. And then you had uh, Mickey Andrews, who was his college coach, who was a huge disciplinarian. But he looks at how those people changed his life and showed him what was possible. Like, he was not a bad kid growing up. What they did was show him, you know, you have talent. If you really focus on it and try to maximize it, these are the things that are possible for you. And once he saw that, man, he's always been a grinder and a worker. Uh, one of the best compliments he ever got is Mickey Andrews was the defensive coordinator at Florida State for a couple of decades. And Florida State had been one of the top programs in the country for a couple of decades. And somebody uh, asked him one time, hey, who's the, who's the most talented player you've ever had at Florida State? It's Deion Sanders. There's no question. And then somebody said, okay, cool. well, who's the hardest working player you've ever had at Florida State? Oh, Deion Sanders. not even close. Well, if you put the most talented guy and then you say he's the hardest worker, I mean, you get what you get. And so what I'm telling you is he's been coaching kids since they were five and six. So, you know, again, uh, Dylan Edwards, a freshman running back on his current team in Colorado. He coached him when he was five years old in Dallas. So he's been coaching a long time. So this really, the transition for him is not being a coach. The transition is going. He went from youth to uh, high school. And then, you know, Deion's personality, he can't really take orders. I mean, you know, he just, he ain't built like that. He's built to lead. And so it would be very difficult for him to go as an assistant coach and be taking orders from somebody on a regular basis. So he figured out, again, they say I need to go through a certain protocol. I don't think so. I'm just going to keep doing what I do, and maybe a job will open up. And uh, Jackson State needed somebody. He needed the opportunity. It was a great uh, symbiotic relationship, both of them. And uh, here we are. Now, some see Dion as a loud, self-promoting machine, but Jacques, you've noted that if you ask Dion about himself, then yes, he will tell you why he is the greatest. However, he doesn't proactively brag about his abilities. No, he's really a, uh, you know, I tell people all the time when they come with that, listen to how his baseball teammates describe him. It's much, much different than his football teammates describe him. At his core, he's really a quiet guy. Like he's a very self-reflective guy. Now, he's got a tight circle of friends that he cut up with them. But outside of that, I mean, he's just, he's a quiet guy. Likes to listen to, uh, you know, 70s uh, R&B. 
and he's laid back. He likes to fish. I mean, that, that alone, his favorite hobby is fishing. That alone tells you a lot about him. It means he likes solitude. He likes quiet. He likes the challenge of finding where the fish are and then going to get them. And so, you know, primetime became a character because he was trying to get paid. Even now, he could be sitting there having a normal conversation like we're having, and his assistant could come up and say, hey, we got to do this TV spot in three minutes. And he can be talking like this. And at 2.59, primetime shows up. And when the interview is over, primetime goes back and Dion comes out. And so once you understand that, you understand that it's a character. It's him. It's just another side of him. Well, as you know, he can certainly hit the switch. You've talked a little about the private side of Dion. Why is he such a great family man? Um, I think, and I've always talked to him about this in, in, in a few different ways, but you know, basically, again, he likes kids. He saw the impact that his father's had on him, his father and his stepfather. Both were good men. Both were flawed. Father was a drug addict. Stepfather had an issue with alcohol. And so that's why he, he's never been a drinker, never never been a drug user, uh, because he saw the impact that it had on their lives. And so when you talk about fatherhood, I mean, some people, man, they just love to be fathers. And so what I'm saying is there's a reason why his two sons play for him. His daughter followed him from Jackson State to Colorado and plays basketball. And his other son, his oldest son, does all of his video work uh, that he puts on his YouTube channel. And his daughter, his oldest, his oldest daughter lives in Atlanta. But he's got four of his five kids with him. That doesn't happen unless family is important to you and it means something to you. Absolutely. That may surprise some people how close his family is and how he's kept. Uh, as you note, four of his five kids are effectively with him now. Let's talk Coach Prime. He has been successful because he meets his college players where they are. He's on Instagram. He has an actual DJ in the team locker room. How does this make him different from the typical college football coach? I mean, I just think that, uh, you know, I wrote about it in, in one of the chapters where he had a meeting with guys and that, you know, this is an age where it's okay to say, you know, I've got some anxiety I'm dealing with some depression. I'm not quite sure how to handle it. It's okay uh, in most areas not to say that. Well, he, he noticed that several of his guys had this issue, so he decided that, uh, hey, once a week on Thursdays at 3 o'clock, I'm going to get this group of guys together, and we're just going to talk about life and how to get through life. And, you know, for college kids, yeah, they're adults, but still, you got kids and they're talking about my girlfriend who broke up with me. How, you know, why did she do that? I have no idea why. Well, here's how you handle a situation like that. Hey, my family thinks I'm going to the league. Now everybody asking me for money. How do I tell them, one, I don't have no money, and two, once I get it, you can't handle it. Well, here's how you do that. Here's how you approach that. I'm dealing with anxiety. How can I? He just went through this litany of things. Now, a lot of coaches will say, hey, we've got a program. Uh, hey, Andrew, I want you to handle this program for these guys. Or they'll say, hey, Andrew, go find a counselor to come in and talk to these guys. Very few head coaches schedule an hour a day every once a week to go handle it themselves so that they know firsthand what the issues are with different guys on their team. And when you do that, it's an indication not just players to you, they're more. They're not just somebody, a bunch of bodies to help you win games. It's deeper than that for you. Your connection is deeper than that. And um, I think that's important. Well, as you have noted, you called those meetings, get naked. 
this is the time to really expose yourself. You were really impressed by his involvement with his kids. Yeah, because I've been around enough athletes, enough programs, I heard enough stories to know that's, that that's not the usual way that it goes. And, you know, the, the other thing is it helps to earn the trust of those guys when you talk about your own, your own frailties, your own issues, your own, your, the things that you've overcome. And in, in his case, like a lot of athletes, it's how you deal with women because they're easily accessible to you and they're easily disposable to you. So how do you deal with, um, you know, he talked about, um, you know, one time, you know, having all this money and all these things, the big house and all this stuff. And what you're still unfulfilled. You're still unhappy, you know, and that's the, uh, that's really right around the time he turned to God a couple of years after that, you know, in terms of trying to find some peace and happiness, even though he's got all this personal success, he was unhappy. And so, when you can talk to your players about that, they see it in a different light. No different than uh, to me, if you talk to your kids and say, hey, I'm not a perfect person. Here's things I've had to deal with over the years. Here's what I've had to come through during my life. At some point, you'll have some adversities and how you handle them, you know, will decide, you know, really how you end up being a man. It is great the way he's been able to talk to his players. Dion knows the difference between Dirk and Lil Dirk. And by the way, one of them might be in the locker room as the DJ the next time you go in there. How much credibility does that give Dion with his players? Well, when I say he meets them where they are, well, that's what I'm talking about. There's a lot of parallels to us. That's why I keep saying, that's why I keep using examples. But if you're a reporter and you're like me and you're in your mid 50s, well, who are you covering? You're covering kids or you're covering athletes who are probably between 22 and 32. But well, that's a big gap. And so how do you relate to those guys? Like, I don't have to sit around and listen to young boys' music all the time. Or I don't have to sit around, you know, and listen to Drake. Or I don't have to sit around and listen to Lil Dirk. But if I go up to them and I say, hey, dog, who you got? Young boy or Lil Dirk? Don't, don't sit on the fence. Let me know who you got. Well, we can, they can, they right there. That's all I need to say. Oh, he knows who that is. Okay, we can talk. He's not an old dude. He's kind of hip. He's kind of into it. And it just creates a, an, an opportunity for you to connect and create a relationship because you're meeting them where they are. They're on Instagram. Kids who he wants to recruit are on Instagram. So to me, it's always been dumb when coaches say, what is that that Twittering thing? What is that 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 Instagram, uh, that whatever that thing is? That dude, that's where your players are. It would behoove you to figure out what it is, how to get in there, and how to communicate. Just like it's very dumb to me when coaches say, hey, no social media during the season. Like, what are you talking about, man? This is what kids do. This is how they communicate. This is a part of their life. And instead of saying no social media, you need to teach them how to control it, how to handle it, how, hey, I'm going to spend this time looking at reels, and then I'm going to go do my schoolwork and go get my film work in and get my weight, what, weight room session. Well, those are the things he does. He spends an inordinate amount of time talking about how to handle life and distractions uh, that, that affect all young men, let alone athletes. And so when you meet those athletes where they are, it's selfish because it gives you a much better approach, much better opportunity to be successful. Well, meeting them at their level has been successful. But at the same time, Dion is decidedly old school. How is Dion old school? Uh, no earrings in the facility. Uh, really, no no phones in the facility. 
outside of uh, the locker room. Um, you got to wear your socks. They got to be black socks. They got to be above your ankle. I mean, he's just very old school in his approach. Why? All the coaches who shaped him are very old school. He's much more like Alabama's Nick Saban than he is anybody. Now, he's got these other things where he meets these kids where they're at. But he's very old school, doesn't have a lot of rules. You know, punctuality is very important to him. Anytime he's got an event, he's almost always 20 or 30 minutes early. And so he he demands that his kids are probably 10 to 15 minutes early. Uh, as he said, the meeting starts when I show up. I'll never get there more than 15 minutes early, ever. But whenever I show up, that's when the meeting starts. And you need to be in your seat, sitting down ready to uh, hear what I have to say. And if you're not, you're late. And if you're late, you can't stay. And and what happened, Jockey? I have some examples of actually him implementing it with his own kid. Well, yeah, he benched his son Shiloh for the uh, Southwestern Athletic Conference Championship game because he was late to a uh, to a meeting coming back from Thanksgiving break. But, you know, he's very consistent because I literally read in the paper yesterday, uh, not in the paper, I read on the, uh, on the internet, where he had told his team because they had to buy this. Colorado had to buy this. He gave them off Wednesday through Sunday. He said, we got to practice it, you know, whatever time, Sunday. And he told them, if you're late to our meeting Sunday morning, we're cleaning your locker out, and you got to go. Now, depending on who it is, they'll get another shot. But the reality of it is, you're not playing the next game if you're late for that meeting. And so what I'm telling you is the same thing he did at Jackson State. It's the same thing as he's doing in Colorado because nothing has changed except the location. It's the discipline and the consistency. Now, of course, two of Deion's sons actually played for him today on the Colorado Buffaloes. Shadur is his quarterback, and as noted, Jock Shiloh is his starting safety. Will we see one or both of them in the NFL one day? I think uh, I think there's no doubt that Shadur is going to the NFL. I think at worst, at worst. He'd be a backup for a decade or longer because he's a very cerebral player, which means he'd be able to pick up offenses. He's already played in three different offensive systems in three different years in college, and you can't tell from the stats. Um, he's a good teammate. He's the kind of guy who, because he makes a lot of money now as himself, uh, he's got a lot of sponsorships. He takes care of his guys. Like last year, he bought his teammates uh beat headphones or he showed up and said everybody got a fair pizza and so i talked to several of his teammates you know he picks up the tab when they go out to dinner just like if i got it then you guys um so at worst because of all those things and he's talented he'll play in the nfl for a long time i think he'll be a starter how successful he is some of that is not up to him some of that is who drafts you what organization drafts you how they build around you, some of that you got no control of. You know, like if you, I mean, just some, I mean, you can look at the history. Some teams you get drafted by, you just have no chance. That you're not going, it's almost impossible to win. Uh, just like some hockey clubs, you get drafted by them, you're not going to, I mean, you're just going to struggle to get to the playoffs every year and you're going to miss it more than you make. So, but Shiloh, uh, Shiloh will have a shot. I'm sure he'll end up in somebody's camp. And then we'll see if he can if he can make it happen. His issue is he's a run, he's much more of a run physical run stopping player than he is a cover guy. Now he can cover, but he's at his best when he's delivering big blows. Well, the game has changed, and that type of player 
is not as coveted as it used to be. Because once upon a time, I was a very coveted player. But as the game has evolved in more of a passing game, that type of player is not is not wanted quite as much. That being said, um, there's always room for a dude to knock your block off, and that's Shiloh. And he's a phenomenal athlete. Uh, he's not fast, but he's a phenomenal athlete. So he's going to get every opportunity. It's just a matter of what he does with those opportunities. There's always a role for the thumper. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Jean-Jacques Taylor, please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We got former Argo and Ticat Mike Morialli, former Maple Leafs captain Rick Vive, Mad About You's Paul Reiser, four sport broadcaster Kenny Albert, and men without hats Ivan Dorischuk. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Jacques, you're also an interesting guy yourself with 19 years at the Dallas Morning News and the first person in that newspaper's venerable 122-year history to rise from intern to general sports columnist. But let's go back. You are a graduate of Dallas's Skyline High School, where you were good friends with future Olympian Michael Johnson. Uh, yeah, it's my guy. He uh, grew up around the corner from me before probably his freshman year before he really got into track. Uh, you know, we'd walk off from school every day. Solve all the world's problems uh, during the 10-minute walk home. And then I think it was my senior year, I got a car. It was an old 1971 Volkswagen in 1985. And so I would, uh, now, you know, it's weird that we did this because he could have just as easily walked to my house. But I would drive up to the bus stop most days, honk, he'd look outside, and then we'd ride to school together. And uh, we had quite a few adventures because it was an old car. You know, one time the car broke down and we hid behind the car because we didn't want the kids on the bus to see that our car had broken down on the side of the road. One day during the thunderstorm, the windshield wiper stopped working. One day we ran out of oil. That's a really big mistake. Uh, it just kind of blew the engine up on the side of the road. So we had quite a few adventures going to school. And so it was uh, one of my great highlights uh, because he'd been through some adversity as an athlete when he finally got gold medal and set the record uh, in the 200 in uh, the 1996 Olympics. It was, uh, I was as proud as uh, anybody else at, at uh, the things he did, accomplish the things he did. And uh, we still keep in touch. Uh, he texted me a couple of days, not a couple of days, more like a couple of weeks ago. He asked, actually he was asking me about some Dion stuff during the summer, whether he thought his approach would work at a place like Colorado. And so, like I said, we stay in touch, communicate on t- Twitter here and there. And uh, he's one of my guys. Excellent. Well, you went on to get your education at the V Ohio State University. I understand that there was a very familiar face on campus with you while you were there. Yeah, I, I was um, talking to my girlfriend about this yesterday. She's like, well, what other schools did you consider? I go, none. I go, my dad was teaching there, so I really wasn't looking at anywhere else. Uh, the only mistake I made is that uh, my dad lived about a mile from campus in a really nice townhouse, and so I stayed with him. And uh, being from Dallas, I should have stayed on campus that first year, even though he was in town. Because I, you know, like I said, being from Dallas, I didn't know anybody when I went up there. And it took me a while to adjust socially because people, people never believe me, but I'm actually quite shy. And so I was, I was much shyer as a kid. And so uh, it took me a while to get adjusted just because I didn't have a lot of friends. I wasn't hanging out a lot in part because I was living with my dad. So, uh, 
that's the only thing I would change. The experience was great because I was always of the mindset. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a reporter. And I was like, you know, if I can kind of make a name for myself at a place like Ohio State where people kind of know me, then I should be able to make a name for myself out of the world. And so that's kind of what happened. And so, um, you know, I'm a Buckeye now. Once a Buckeye, always a Buckeye. There you go. That- Now, Jacques, the headline is that you started your career at the Dallas Morning News, and two years later, you're covering America's team, the Dallas Cowboys. But why don't you tell us how you got into sports writing? Uh, Why don't you share the stories of your internships and onwards? Uh, The thing is, I told you, I always wanted to be a sports writer. So I was was a guy who read the sports pages for as long as I can remember. Uh, Like eight, nine years old, I was reading sports pages every day. And when I got to high school, there was two papers in Dallas, morning paper and an afternoon paper. Well, most people got the morning paper. And so on my way to school, I would uh, take the sports section out of different people's newspaper every morning. I'd put the rest of the paper back, and I'd never take the same sports section two days in a row. But I had a little system, and so I would read the sports page on the way to school because uh, before I started driving, it was about a 30-minute bus ride to school every day. And so, like I said, I really always wanted to be a sports reporter. And so uh, when I went to college, I had a plan for what I was going to do. I was going to cover the football team my junior year, be the sports editor, and then I wanted to be the first black editor at the Lantern, which was our school paper at Ohio State. Well, once I uh, covered the football team, that was a great experience. I was an editor. I didn't like being in charge of other people. And so I was on pace to graduate. And I had mentioned to my mother one day that, oh, the Cincinnati Enquirer was coming through to uh, give out some internships. She said, you should go, uh, you should go, go interview with me. And I said, no, nah, I'm good. I said, I'm tanned up at school and uh, I'm ready to graduate, start working. And she said, yeah, no, but you never really interviewed for a newspaper job before. So you should just go practice and see what it's like. I said, ah, oh, you know what? That makes sense. Okay, I'll go do it. And you know, because I didn't care and had no intention of getting the inter- getting the internship, I was very relaxed. And I was like, you know, I'm probably the best journalism student at, at Ohio State right now. That's why I'm ready to graduate, blah, 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 blah. And at the end of the interview, the guy looked at me and said, you know, this is really the most refreshing interview I've had in so long. Would you like to come work for us this summer? And I was like, oh, uh, well, yeah. And so I did that. So now I got an internship under my belt, and I'm like, hey, it's all good. I'm not really ready to graduate. And at that point, uh, I'll never forget it. I was standing in the newsroom working on something, and the guy was on the phone, and he called me over. And I was like, yeah, what's up? He said, hey, I got the New York Times on the phone. I can't do this internship this summer because this was late in the year. And he's like, I can't do this internship. They're looking for somebody. You interested? That I told him about you. I was like, the New York Times? Yeah. So I got on the phone, I sent them some stuff, and they were like, oh, yeah, come come hang out with us during the summer. So the next summer I went to New York, and so I'm really done with internships now. And I'm really ready to graduate. And I went to a National Associated Black Journalists Regional Conference looking for a job uh, because I was going to graduate sometime soon. And I spoke with the Dallas Morning News, and they said, hey, love your resume, blah, blah, blah. He said, hey, would you like to come for an internship? And I said, no, thank you. I've done a couple summer internships. I have no interest in covering tennis and golf and all that. I was ready to graduate. I said, if you had a fall internship, I would do that because I could cover football and 
help out in a lot of different areas. And they were like, we don't often fall internships. I said, hey, I, I know that. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And about a week later, I got another call. So we had a fall internship, would you come? And I said, well, yeah, if you had a fall internship. He said, okay, we're going to make a fall internship for you. So I went. And again, I, didn't, I just never listened to they. I had been there. My internship was just about over. I walked into sports editor's office and I said, hey, what are the odds that I could stay for another three months? Because I'm just not getting good. And he looked at me. His name is Dave Smith. He's one of the giants in the business. He says, so let me get this straight. First, you want us to create a fall internship for you. Now you want to stay six months instead of three. What is your problem? And I started laughing. I said, you know, all I can do is ask. He said, let me think about it. And they came back uh, Monday and he's like, okay, you can stay another three months. I did that. And uh, when it was over, it was March. So I stayed from September to March. And uh, at that point, he said, hey, if you graduate by the end of the year, we'll hire you in January. I said, cool. So uh, I graduated in uh, December, started at the Dallas Morning News in January. And two years later, you're covering America's team. You've been so close to that program. Whether you love them or you hate them, everyone is passionate about the Dallas Cowboys. Jacques, you've been so close to that program. You've seen it firsthand for so long. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, is he a marketing genius? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, and that's because he gets it. Pretty much as long as you're talking about us, we're making news. He's always had high-priced offensive stars. He's always made every part of his program, every part of the Cowboys, accessible to the media. He's made himself accessible to the media um, for a long time. When I say a long time, I mean probably three, four, five years. I would call and talk to Jerry every Monday for about anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour about the game, the team, everything. And so that's when I was the lead beat writer. And I just had an incredible grip on the team and the organization because I was talking to Jerry for 30 to 45 minutes every Monday about the game and what's going on. And a lot of that was background. And so I could follow it up later in the week with other types of stories. But um, no, he's a, uh, he's a marketing genius because he makes people talk about the Cowboys. He keeps them on TV. He keeps them relevant even when they're no good. And uh, that's what makes him a genius. I agree. He does keep them relevant even during the low times. But you were certainly there during the high times, the amazing days, covering the champion Cowboys teams of Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, Mike Lurvin, and of course, Deion Sanders. Jacques, any particular memories that stand out for you? Covering a team, it's uh, you're always thinking about the Super Bowl, uh, Super Bowl 30, uh, when they won it my first year there. But the problem is it was such a whirlwind and it was such an overwhelming experience. You know, I don't really remember much from that season just because so much was going on. I had flashes, but to just sit back and go through it, it was so much going on. It was hard. It was just hard to get a grip on it. Uh, probably my favorite time to cover was Bill Parcells because uh, they were really relevant. He was a great coach, a Hall of Fame coach. Uh, you learned a lot about football, talking to him. And that's when I had been doing it for uh, probably seven or eight years by then. So my source development was really good. And uh, I broke a lot of stories, and it used to drive him nuts. And I took a lot of pride in that because uh, he tried to shut the organization down as a head coach. Um, but I was already kind of so ingrained, he couldn't stop it. And so uh, I took a lot of pride in that. 
you know, those are probably my favorite times covering the Cowboys because it's a very competitive beat, both locally and nationally. And there was a period where I felt like I owned it. And so um, there's a real sense of an accomplishment during those time periods because everybody's trying to break stories and uh, you're breaking more than most. And I'm going to assume that one of your most special moments was October 27th, 2002, when Emmett Smith broke the NFL's all-time rushing record against the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, that was a cool deal. You know, all the problem was the team wasn't any good. Uh, I think they were 5-11 and 11 that year. Um, it turned out to be his last year in Dallas. And because the team wasn't any good and he was at the end of his career, you couldn't celebrate it kind of like, the way he could have done it a couple of years earlier when he was really tear, still tearing it up. And really, the only thing we had was the, was the rushing record because the team wasn't in it. Uh, but Emmett's a uh, terrific guy. Uh, obviously, he's a great player. And the thing about him was he could – and I saw this on tape because one time I asked a uh, asked his running backs coach, a guy named Tommy Robbins, who's actually a DNA staff here at Colorado right now. I said, hey, man. Why is Emmett so good? He gave me this long answer. And he says, you know what? Come by my office. I'm going to show you some tape. And so I went. And he just pulled up the tape from the last game Emmett had played. And he showed me a bunch of his plays. He said, this is why he's great. And they were all plays where he was in a very tight space. And he'd make two or three guys miss in this tight space. And he gained like seven or eight yards when he should have been tackled for like two or three. Or he'd have the ball and he'd take his other hand and uh, knock somebody else's hand away and pick up three more yards. There's all these very subtle things that showed you up close why he was great. And so, you know, that's one of the things I really appreciated about Emmett. It wasn't like Dion where it's very easy to see why he's great. It was all this subtleness and nuance to his game, which is why he was great. I want to ask for your book, Jacques. Have you had a chance to... Uh send or personally give an autographed copy to Dion himself. I guess he's got his hands full right now. <laughs> yeah, I dropped a uh, I dropped a copy off to him in the in August, uh right before the season. I've been up there a couple times, but you know, it, it's work. And so, you know, Dion is again we've talked about him being a worker. We've talked about uh you know his focus. And so, you know, he's 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 uh really focused on the season right now. And so even when I go to Colorado because I do some work for uh, Anscape, uh, ESPN's Anscape. You know, this is not a time of the year where you just sit around and hey, man, how you doing? That's really the offseason. Uh, so I talked to him here and there, but uh, yeah, he's got a copy of it. He'll be getting in the offseason to get his review of your book on him. Now, Jacques, this being the Toronto Legends podcast, any Toronto or Canadian connections or stories that you would like to share? The biggest one for me is you know, I lived in Buffalo until I was uh, seven. And so I grew up a huge hockey fan, huge fan of the Buffalo Sabres, a uh, huge fan of French Connection with uh, Gilbert Perrault and Rene Robert and Rick Mark on that line, 7, 9, and 11, I think. And so, uh, you know, and I'm still a hockey fan. And, uh, you know, the, the weird thing about it is, I can never get out of my head how I was at the odd in Buffalo the day after Tim Horton died. And so they had a moment of silence uh, for Tim Horton. And I was only about seven years old. It wasn't, like I said, I was a huge hockey fan uh, growing up. 
And so it seems odd to me that I can remember that thing very clear moment of silence on this board, even though it was so many years ago. And he wasn't a fan favorite of mine. I just remember being there that night when they when they uh, when they honored him after he died. And of course, today uh, the younger folk know Tim Wharton more for the coffee. But uh, <laughs> he was a prolific player, of course. So it's great. It's great that you remember that. What is next for Jean-Jacques Taylor? What are you working on? And of course, tell us where we can best uh, follow you. You know, Taylor, follow me. I'm on Twitter at JJT underscore journalist. I'm on IG at uh, Jacques Talk, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S Talk. And I've got a, uh, I'm working on a, uh, we're negotiating, we're cro- dotting the I's across the T's. Uh, we're HarperCollins on another book. Uh, can't tell y'all what it is now, but it's a. Uh, it's not going to be a season with, but it's. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy the topic. Uh, it's a huge name in sports, and um, once we dot the I's and cross the T's, we'll make an announcement. But uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And what's next for me, man? Is um, I'm really getting into the, uh, the Jacques Talk brand in terms of uh, taking my podcast bigger, and, and I really try to transform. One, into an author, because I like the book writing process. And two, part of the other thing that my company, the JJT Media Group, part of what we do is, uh, and I enjoy it quite a bit, is I tell stories about people's businesses. You know, why, you know, how the business came to be, because every business, every person has a story. And I like telling them. And so I do it for corporations. I do it for uh, nonprofit organizations. They use them on a website, that whole about us thing. Uh, normally, when you look at it, it's three paragraphs. Oh, we started this business in 1984, and here we are today. And we love serving our customers. Well, I like to go a little deeper and, uh, and tell that company story. And so between that and writing books and then uh, covering the Cowboys and DI, keeps me busy, but that's good. That's great. You certainly are keeping busy. Again, Jacques' new book, Coach Prime, Deion Sanders and the Making of Men, is available right now wherever you like to get your books. Jacques, it's been great to meet you. Congrats again on your book. And I want to wish you continued success. And I hope you'll let us know once the contract gets signed who the next book's about and we'll have you back on. Absolutely, man. I appreciate it very much. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Jean-Jacques Taylor, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. 
Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.